It's been over a year since businesses all over the world shifted their attention to addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion issues more seriously than ever before. Commitments were made, processes were created, and change has been in the air. But have things really changed? In today's episode, we get together to discuss the reality of where DEI is in businesses today and where it should go next. We obviously have a lot to say about how love fits into the picture. So enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Love is a Business Strategy, a podcast that brings humanity to the workplace. We're here to talk about business, but we want to tackle topics that most business leaders shy away from. We believe that humanity and love should be at the center of every successful business. I'm your host, Jeff Ma, and I'm a director at Softway, a technology company that helps transform company cultures. I'm joined today by President and CEO Mohammed Anwar. Hey, Mohammed, how you doing? Hey, Jeff. Hey, guys. Chris Petrie, Vice President. Hi, Chris. Hey. And Frank Dana, Director. Hi, Frank. Hey, Jeff. Usual suspects. So each episode, we dive into an element of business or strategy and we test our theory of love against it, as we all know. Today, I want to talk about, uh, I want to like take some time on air here to talk a little bit about a topic that's been floating just amongst even the four of us personally uh, in our, our chats, in our texts. Mohammed, you sent me an article, you sent all of us an article that was really interesting. Almost a month back came out or over a month back came out. Um, and I'm sure we can put this in the podcast show notes for everyone to check out, but it was, it was, it was very interesting. It was very intriguing at the time you just sent it, um, cause it was interesting, but I think since then we've also had a lot of thoughts of our own around it. I wanted to have a quick chat today, the four of us around it. The title of the article is corporate America promised to get more diverse, but it's still mostly white women making gains. And the article is not just about white women. I don't want to talk about just white women today. But it is about diversity inclusion and the efforts that have happened since really the murder of George Floyd to this point and how it's been so center stage to be talking about DNI, DEI and these things in the, in the corporate workplace. And, and yet stats and metrics and reality has shown that maybe we're not moving the needle as, as far as, as we would expect. Right, Mohammed? can you tell us a little bit about that article and, and what we see in there? Yeah, sure. So the article was meant to see how corporate America and their commitment to a more diverse environment, how had they fared over the last one year uh, since, uh, you know, uh, the murder of George Floyd and all the open commitments that corporate America made for a more diverse uh, and inclusive organizations. And what it saw was that while there was movement made, um, it was primarily uh, for uh, white women have seen most of the gains, especially on the board member seats, which is, you know, kind of representative of at leadership levels and board levels of Fortune 500 companies, um, how diversity is represented in them. And so while there were gains made, and I think that's a very good sign, it, however, is not representative of the demographics of America right? And it's still very underrepresented. Also, the rate of diversity growth really didn't change. Um, year on year from 2004, the 
you know, minority representation would grow by less than half a percent every year. Well, that hasn't changed. It's still less than half a percent uh, between last year and this year. Mm-hmm. So there's far more to be done. And what we recognize is while commitments have been made and there is some traction for one minority group, uh, which is rightfully something we all should work on, uh, which is the gender gap, but also it shows that it's not truly uh, representative of all the minorities um, as you know, in proportion to the representation of the whole population of America as a whole. So that was the essence of the article, Jeff. Thanks. It was a great summary. Um, yeah, I mean, it's almost like he wrote the article, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> no. Um, so metrics, trends are showing, uh, um, I guess, despite commitments, a lack of movement. I'm curious, Chris, what's your take on why that is? Like, I, I know the article talks a little bit about it, but from our perspective, why do you think that is? Well, I think the well, it's a great sort of movement and initiative to kickstart inside of an organization is to really get serious about DEI. Um, the reality that we've seen and heard and, and, um, and, and I think anecdotally have heard so many stories about is that the starting place that those organizations went in with, which was anti-racism, was probably too much too soon for where those organizations really were and the readiness they had around being a part of those conversations, no matter what side of the table you were on. Um, And so when you think about starting in those really controversial, deep, deep deep-seated discussions, it's likely going to lead to a polarization effect, right? Where people are going to walk in sort of hungry for real change and want to be a part of something. And then what they hear are on one side guilt, guilt messages and on the other side, you know, reliving trauma and again, being in a room with just silence and people nodding their heads or asking you how you feel about that, but, but not really changing systems, tools, process, behaviors, interactions, all those things. Right. Um, And, you know, while I know that in many DEI efforts, it's typically, I call it monkey see, monkey do, or, you know, bandwagoning where you you see someone else commit to it. I'm going to commit to it and we're going to do it better than they did, right? And this, in DEI, you can't really do that and be effective. You have to assess where is our organization? What is really the state of readiness from a leadership perspective, from a budget perspective, from a time perspective, right? And you have to be honest, right? And if there isn't a space yet for honesty in general, there definitely isn't a space for honesty about these types of topics. And so um, the reason why so many of these organizations likely are still stalled out or you know, went all in and got nowhere fast is because they likely Googled anti-racism training, brought that in, or unconscious bias training brought that in, and it didn't go over very well. Um, many folks who are successful naturally see themselves as inclusive, you know, um, supportive, enabling, and all those things, and like all the positive things that you associate with just leadership in general. People already see themselves doing those things, and so when you're told that you're not that, <laughs> right, you can imagine sort of cold water being thrown over you. And again, this is not an indictment on leaders who might sort of be resistant or hesitant to wholly listen and accept and adopt those types of things. But, you know, we've learned that, you know, when you come in and you just start the conversation off, you know, from a place of one self-awareness, you avoid pushing people into that place where they turn off 
all listening ears to any topic around sort of inclusivity. And so from my perspective, just the, the approach that so many people try to just Google and copy and rinse and repeat has probably led themselves, you know, finding themselves further from the starting line than where they wanted going in. Agreed. Yeah. I uh, totally agree, Chris. And I think, I think the intent is there, uh, all of the organization's commitments and everything. And I think we, we saw those open commitments. And I think in the moment, the intent was great. I think it's just the approach that they may have taken to build uh, upon that commitment is where maybe the outcomes that they had hoped for haven't been achieved. And uh, we've observed, as Chris rightly mentioned, that I think a lot of them went too hard uh, with the angle of anti-racism training or unconscious bias training. And I think, to be honest, um, in a state where uh, society is polarized, these kind of initiatives probably furthered the polarization and did not help. Uh, because ultimately, I think the way to approach, and I believe the way to approach, and we've seen this inside of our own organization uh, ourselves, is to start with the commonality, start to uh, use love as a way to get people to the table to start having the conversation. But if we start with differences, let alone starting with uh, almost accusational type initiatives, even though it's not directly accusational, but it can infer that guilt. Um, I think it doesn't help people even come to the table to listen, to even explore, to be curious. And so we believe that the approach is to first start with love, get people to the common table from the left or the right, uh, you know, from whichever side you sit on. And then once you have people at the table, um, then we can start to speak about our differences and learn about our differences. But then we look at it from a lens of really getting to know the other person out of love and not from an accusational position. So it helps you then truly take your organization through education and information where they are keen to learn because at the at the core we're all human and if you can share stories and empathic uh, storytelling and share lived experiences from another person's perspective that may not be from the rep group i represent it's far more inviting for me to get to learn and educate myself so that i can embrace and appreciate uh, the differences. So that's what we believe is the right way to go about uh, making organizations, and especially leaders, getting them to uh, truly embrace uh, DNI initiatives and you know change their behaviors and mindsets around uh, these type of topics and realities that exist in the world. Yeah, for me, it's it's interesting because Mohammed, you talked about building relationship, right? And there's this great quote by the director of Finding Nemo. Um, his name is Andrew Stanton. He says, frankly, there isn't anyone you couldn't learn to love once you've heard their story. And I think that's such a powerful testament to the right approach for organizations to take. Not like Chris, Chris mentioned, not jumping into the anti-racism training up front, but rather beginning from a place of empathy, 
learning the stories of the people that are part of your organization, building real relationships. And that's really how it starts. Uh, when we're able to see other people, not as the different socioeconomic components that make them up, but actual human beings that have lives, that have families, that have cares, that have desires, that have wants, that have needs, that have struggles. When we start seeing each other as human, that's when we actually get a chance to learn about how our differences make us special and what those differences can bring to the table. And so, you know, I, I think it's, I, I, I want to go back. There's this, there's this quote that Ted Lasso says um, that I love. He says, taking on a challenge is a lot like riding a horse. If you're comfortable while you're doing it, you're probably doing it wrong. And, and I feel like what's ended up happening over the course of the past year is these organizations and companies have said, we're committing to this but they take on this challenge and it's uncomfortable because let's be honest, this is not a comfortable topic. This is not something that's easy for us to have. These discussions are challenging naturally. And so organizations have, from what we've seen, taken their foot off the, the gas a little bit or diverted into other opportunities that are a little easier. But I think what's ironic to me is just building real relationships is the core fundamental starting point and while it's it's uncomfortable to have conversations that are outside of what you typically have, it's still far easier than trying to ram a new diversity and inclusion initiative down people's throats and trying to force them into these discussions about things that will polarize them and actually push them further into their unwillingness to to learn and grow and explore. So I got to drop so, I mean, two drops. And when, you you, uh, when you think about just like the history around business initiatives and the 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 ways in which they have stripped initiatives of the human factors right so when you think about hr you think about policies you think about systems you think about benefits you think but you don't think about training you don't think about you know the people side of things first you always think about the systems that incorporate the um, function of the business as well as the processes associated and dei is one of those where you can't fix a system, you can't create a process, you can't start with those things that are stripped of human factors, you actually have, like, it's all in majority about the human factors. Yeah. And those yeah. are the things that go back and influence the systems, the policies, the process. Um, and so, you know, the business world has just done a fantastic job of, you know, removing the humanity from a number of things, <laughs> right? Actually and this, right? And this, and it's not, again, this is not an indictment on sitting leaders right. who are probably like, well, of course you got to operationalize. And it's like, that's, that's the, that's the challenge is like delaying that mindset and starting with the mindset, but before we operationalize it, who, mm. who yes. is like, you have to figure out the who, right? And, and that is typically the last thing in most business, most business strategy development is who always is, is last. Whereas with the EI, who has to be first? And if you can't answer who, and that starts with leaders, like figuring out who they are, you know, how they lead, why they lead, you know, why they behave the way they behave and figuring out that stuff. And then changing their mindsets, looking at how they are, you know, doing things, maybe not the best, how they are, you know, uh, you know, failing at certain things, how they are um, maybe overreacting to other things um, and taking that time to really think about that. Because if they're not embracing a new mindset, 
they're only going to replace a failing system with another failing system, right? Like you're only you're you're bound to repeat the same mistakes if you're going to take the same approach or the same mentality towards it. Um, and so with DEI, you can't approach it the same way as you would any other business strategy. Let me Google a competitor or an aspirational competitor, see what they did, and then I'm gonna go and find the same vendors, the same processes, the same tools, and then I'm gonna bring that here, which works in literally just about every other function. But then with DEI, when you try and Google someone else's strategy, like they have a different set of humans, they have a different context, they have different sort of, you know, situations that are going on, while there may be patterns that are similar, like you rarely hear in case studies, like the behaviors of the groups that are being sort of touched by these solutions or these processes, right? Um, you don't hear about the mindsets, you don't hear about the um, the baggage and the resentment that is that has built up. Like I have yet to read a case study where they actually outlay, oh, the leaders are super arrogant. And so therefore it made everything different, right? Like, you know, you don't yeah, get that, you, <laughs> you don't get those yeah. realities. And so you go and try and copy what they did and you get, you know, mesmerized by the numbers and the stats and the results and the cool things that did, right? But you don't hear, wait, were their problems and situations one for one with me? Am I trying to replicate something that won't work for me? Have I done the hard work of looking at myself, looking at my team, looking at the whole business? Um, and actually looked at how ready are we for this? Where is our starting line? Do we start with anti-racism or do we start with just building better self-awareness? And what does that look like for our team? Do we start looking at our commonalities first? Do we start understanding what is it that makes us all tick? Why are we all here? What are all of our goals? What behavior should we all be exhibiting, right? Coming from that place first um, typically is one, easier, <laughs> two, safer, right. And, and three, it um, allows for the right conversations to happen up front so that when we get into the hard conversations, you have sort of that lifeline that you can go back to and swim to and be like, wait, remember the goals, remember the behaviors that we said we, we all wanted, we gotta get back to that place, mm -hmm. right? But when you don't have home base set up, it's it's really hard to to know how to move forward mm -hmm. or let alone repair potentially you know hazards that can naturally happen when you go into those deep, deep issues that, you know, you know, can be traumatic for some or polarizing for others. So Chris, I know we've uh, looked at a lot of organizations making, you know, policy changes and procedural changes and, you know, recruitment changes and so forth. And it's been great to see efforts made over there. I think you touched briefly on this, but how behaviors are not the foundations of the change initiative. They're starting with process and policies. I know you had some uh, interesting points of how data can be misleading when it comes to DNI. Would you share that example you shared with us the other day about employee engagement data and how sometimes corporate uh, leaders can mistake that information and how it doesn't help, please? Yeah. So. Traditionally, when we look at data, especially when it comes to like market share or, you know, the traditional things that we review for business reasons, um, we see like, oh, 80, we're 80 percent higher or we have like, you know, 80 percent of market share. Great. We're doing great. Um, and then when, with engagement surveys, we tend to take that same mentality. Right. And it's the right mentality in certain places. But here you can see or I'll hope you see how it could be problematic. But you take that and you see like, oh, wow, 80% of our team is super engaged. We're doing great, you guys. Like our DNI efforts are going to be easy. We don't have to do that much. It's great. Like 80% of the people um, are enjoying it here or not having an issue. And we have this 20% like, yeah, they're right. And you sort of dismiss the 20%. 
if you're really committed to DNI or, or DEI or diversity, equity, inclusion, if you want me to say it out full right, full stop, um, <laughs> uh, we is a uh, uh, shout out to Javon. We miss you, Javon. Yeah, Javon. Hope you're doing <laughs> yeah. well. Yep, I was thinking about Javon. His uh, yeah. name pops up in my head every time. If you're listening to this and have not heard the podcast we've done with Javon McCormick from Scribe Media, go back and listen. And all of this will make sense. Um, but um, <laughs> if that's if you're if you're really committed to DEI um, from that perspective, you do have to lean into that 20%. That is where your focus and attention has to be. You can't dismiss the 20%. You have to maintain what's going on with the 80% and figure out ways to improve the experiences for the for the 20%. Mm -hmm. And so many leaders miss that. And so when they get those engagement results, they they can easily find themselves quieting or dismissing the 20 percent I'm like oh that's only a minority and it's like well <laughs> DEI is about the marginalized experiences right like so um you know it's 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 a really interesting paradigm to shift that line of thinking and that line of analysis to go in and say why do we have 20 percent of our team having a different experience from the 80 percent and when you just yeah. stop and ask yourself that question Hopefully, there's a curiosity there that will drive you to want to learn, understand, and not be offended if it comes back that you are contributing potentially to that cross-grain experience. Um, and you know what I will tell everyone is that you can be a marginalized person or in the minority or a person of color or a woman and still be contributing <laughs> to the bad experiences of another marginalized group. Um, so this is universal. Um, and many times there's there's leaders that I've met and spoken to that that miss that that believe is just a certain group that is contributing to this experience. And that's not true. Right. Um, and when you think about all the different dimensions of diversity and identity, it goes beyond just race and gender. You have socioeconomic status, you have education and pedigree, you have neurodiversity, you have uh, physical diversity or physical ability, veteran status. Right. You have all sorts of slices and dices that can change who's dominant and who's not in a room. Um, and when you are in a room where you are the one who doesn't have what everyone else has you feel it and you sense it and the conversation is happening around you and you're just like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> I can't do anything. Can't say anything. Nobody's calling on me. Nobody supports me. Right. Um, and it's very easy for those types of experiences to happen and they go unseen, unnoticed and underreported, of course. Yeah. And I think our approach to solving a lot of this is through behavior change, building inclusive right. behaviors. And many a times, mm -hmm. Whenever we've proposed uh, our solution to start with behaviors, a lot of leaders and uh, you know stakeholders at corporate uh, organizations struggle with understanding the connection between behaviors and DNI. And we've always caught ourselves uh, with cross-question examination of wait, what does behaviors and behavior training have to do with DNI? Uh, you know, mm -hmm. so it kind of shows their immaturity in understanding what it really takes to build diverse, you know, uh, equitable and inclusive environments. Because we believe it starts with behaviors. Behaviors are the bottom line. In yeah. fact, I know Chris, uh, Jeff and Frank, we just saw this article on BuzzFeed about the Sony employee who sued Sony for discrimination. And uh, when you look at that article and you read through everything, everything that is outlined as what was done to her 
in terms of discrimination mm-hmm. comes back to behaviors. It does. And yeah. and when you really come to think about it, it behaviors that we might be demonstrating to anyone potentially, <laughs> but if it does happen with uh, a minority represented group or an individual from uh, a minority group, it could become a cause for a EEOC claim or a legal lawsuit. And so our approach is we start with behaviors. Let's work on changing the behaviors and the mindsets of our leaders and the individuals in your organization. If you really want to make a difference mm-hmm. in the DEI efforts, you have to start with behavior change. Yep. And um, so if we really think about it, a lot of the EEOC claims could have been avoided had we just uh, were able to train our talent how to have the right behaviors to be inclusive, regardless of who the person on the other side of the table is. <laughs> yeah, like a lot yeah, of times so. they, they, they ask like, oh, why, why, why do they treat black people this way? And the question is, why do you treat anybody that way? Like, why would you treat yeah, right. anybody that way? Like, and why does that behavior exist? Exactly. Yeah. So like part... Part of our approach is, is to build self-awareness, right? To help us understand our surroundings, the impact we're having on others and how others are impacting us. Like, and when we're able to build self-awareness of our behaviors, we start to recognize the fact that that is where the inclusion piece of diversity, equity, and inclusion actually plays, right? Because if you have representation across your organization, most people consider diversity covered, right? Like I have a strong diversity and inclusion program, but if behaviors are not considered, you'll never unlock the value of different dimensions of diversity. So in order to get to that point, you have to create behavior that is actively seeking opportunities to not just give a voice to people, but also create opportunities for people. And that's where we a, a year into this, right? A year into these massive commitments, that's where corporate America still needs to move and progress yeah. into the recognition and understanding that inclusion is unlocked as a result of our behaviors, as a result of the self-awareness of how we're treating others and yeah. finding and making sure that we use our positions to make sure that there are people that need to be in the right positions and right places. So I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's nice to see, like you said, Muhammad, the progress that's happened over the past year, but there's so much more work that needs to be done. And I feel like it's, it's, it's not as hard as people have made it out to be when it comes to a starting point, but a lot of folks just haven't recognized that it starts with building real relationships and building that self-awareness. Agreed. And, you know, I think there's a, a incredible focus on uh, systemic issues, right? And when you really think about it, how did these systems come into existence? It's not like they just miraculously just appeared. It started with people's mindsets and behaviors because the, some people in position of power instituted those processes and systems that are discriminatory, right? And they may have done it unintentionally or unconsciously, whatever the reason might be. The solution isn't to go f- try to tackle the systems. You have to start with, tackling the behaviors and the mindsets of the very people who are responsible for instituting policies and systems. Otherwise, you will never break out of the cycle of changing systemic issues if you don't start with building self-awareness and changing behaviors and mindsets. And, you know, there might be situations where people do behave 
differently towards minority representation. So we're in no way saying that people may not treat uh, you know uh, minority represent groups differently. It's just that they may not just have the self-awareness that they're doing mm. it. So to help them with that, we have to start with behaviors uh, and mindset you know, uh, awareness and training. Um, and from there, you are able to fix the root cause to then change the, uh, the systems, which is a symptom of people's mindsets and behaviors. So if we start at systems, but don't address the root cause, are we really going to make a you know, path forward? And that's where the question becomes. And so the answer to solving people's problems is to start with the people and the people's mm -hmm. behaviors and mindset, not with systems. And, yeah. and not to sound hokey, but it starts with love, right? I mean, it starts with our culture of love. Obviously, we're biased, but this is everything we talk about uh, on this podcast and the book because when you're able to see people as humans and start from that space, start from humanity, um, even with biases, even with other issues that may be present, you're able to work through it and get to a place and utilize moments of vulnerability and trust and forgiveness to get through this because that's what it's gonna to take to really get uncomfortable and really get through these things, which is where the real change happens. And you know, there's no magic wand to just say, here's the new process, here's a new policy that we all follow. And all of a sudden, these real human issues and conflicts and pains and struggles just disappear. It has to be a human solution to a human problem. And so love is kind of you know, the most powerful weapon, if you will, um, to, to addressing these, right? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And the other benefit is if you are looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion from the lens of humanity and love and like say, hey, if we can help the most uh, minority or marginalized groups, you're actually going to benefit everyone. And Chris, I'd love for you to share a case study of how help, looking, um, you know, working towards helping uh, minority groups, how it helps the majority of the groups. If you don't mind sharing that story, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, so this was back in what the 60s or 70s. I am not a historian and dates are not my thing, but the stories are. So way back before I was born, <laughs> um, the, the community um, for people with disabilities were really trying to advocate to governments locally and federally around building in curb cutouts into sort of sidewalks so that way crossing streets became easier if you were in the wheelchair. Um, and, um, you know, they got pushed back, you know, people were, you know, thinking about the budgetary impacts, of course, and, you know, all sorts of finding all sorts of reasons why it might not be ideal. Uh, nevertheless, they got it approved, moved ahead, curb cutouts were a thing, became a thing. And they did studies afterward to see how, like, the impact of those. And what they noticed was that it wasn't just people with disabilities who were now able to move easily and, and freely around cities and street corners, but it was also women with strollers or men with strollers. It was uh, people who were moving things on wheels, such as uh, delivery men, et cetera, right? Like, anybody who had additional things that they were pushing or carrying actually made it easier or made it easier for them. So they benefited. And then the other interesting thing was that, you know, deaths for pedestrians dropped, right? Who were crossing streets because now they had somewhere to stop to signal that they were walking into oncoming traffic, 
right? So like all of these things just like blossomed after those curb cutouts that would have never happened had that community not advocated for um, for those things to be implemented. And now we would find it weird to go to a curb and be like, wait, <laughs> where where do I stop? Why is this, a, right? Like that would, we would all be frustrated. And so the idea behind that story and that you know example is to show everyone that when you take care of the most, most marginalized group, you solve problems for everybody. Um, and so I know that sometimes when people hear um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, when they hear DEI, when they hear culture, they hear potentially, you know, something is being taken away from me or opportunities are not going to be there for me or I have to give up something now so that someone else can win and I lose, right? They, they, it's a natural human thing, right? And there's nothing that's not a bad thing, it's just a thing. But when you hear that type of story, you can see like, wait, everyone benefits from mentorship programs. <laughs> everyone can benefit from allyship. Everyone benefits from sponsorship. Everyone benefits from being able to be their whole selves inside of the office, right? Um, and so there isn't anything that you give up, even though it might feel that way, because some of the efforts initially might be focused on enlivening or at least enriching the experiences for those who might be starting from a different place than you are. And I would agree in the, in that same vein, the way that we've taken an approach for inclusive behavior training is while there are visible things by the eyesight that you could see differences from physical identity, gender, ethnicity, um, and race, our focus is don't just stop there. You need to be inclusive of things that are invisible to you. Maybe the way people think, maybe the way they manage time, how they make decisions, what they value more in life. And when you are able to make space and be inclusive in your behaviors towards um, every, uh, you know, even the invisible aspects of elements of diversity, you are now creating a better environment and place for every human at the workplace. Because now the leaders and the coworkers demonstrate inclusive behaviors that's not just needed to treat say, uh, a, a person of color better, but also anyone who is human and interacting and, uh, you know, being able to experience those behaviors benefits from it. So by teaching inclusive behaviors, you're not just making space for the minorities and the marginalized communities, but also you're making space for everyone, no matter what their situation is, what background they have, and even the things that are invisible. Uh, to us in terms of how they are different. You're making space for all differences to come together, different perspectives to come to the table, and you're able to become a much better, high-performing, innovative organization that is resilient. And so, you know, I think that's the real solution that corporate America has to jump on is start with behaviors to see a true long-lasting change in all of corporate America to truly become diverse, equi diverse equitable, and inclusive. Mm -hmm. If we start at processes, we're going to uh, probably not make a lot of traction. We might do short-term traction, but it's not going to be sustainable. And secondly, if we even start having education and training, starting from the lens of uh, you know polarizing conversations or maybe borderline accusational type uh, positions, you're going to distance the people from the table to have those conversations. So that's our approach. That's how we like to take our customers. And that's what we strive to practice inside of our own organization. 
And so we're hoping that we can uh, bring about this awareness and spread this information and message for those leaders out there who are really looking to, who are committed to a change but don't know how to go about it. Hopefully this, uh, this, this discussion of ours is going to bring value and uh, helps you guys with your commitments out there. Absolutely. Thanks for that, Mo. It's perfect close to this conversation. Uh, thank you, Chris, Frank, Mo, of course, for having this talk about this uncomfortable thing. I know there's more to dive into. I'm looking forward to some future conversations as we talk about getting really tactical around this stuff. But as Muhammad mentioned, this is our entire mission. Uh, it's built around bringing humanity back to the workplace. That's why we do what we do. And it is possible. So, you know, anyone out there feeling like they're losing hope, losing confidence in what's going on. It's not all bad. We've seen it work. We've made it work and we want to make it work, work, work for more people. So um, opening that conversation, come talk to us, um, check out our book, uh, you know, keep, keep following the podcast and those things. Hopefully um, the message will get through and, and grow from there. This movement will grow. So with that, you know, we do post new podcast episodes every Wednesday uh, and if you like what you're hearing, if you like have any suggestions or topics you'd like us to cover, let us know at software.com slash labs. That's L-A-A-B-S. And be sure to leave us a review and share with your friends. We appreciate all of that support. And with that, we will see you all next week. Peace.